I'd invite you this morning to turn again to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the 22nd chapter. The text from the lectionary today actually begins at verse 34, um, but I'm frustrated and angry with it that it skipped the text right before. So we are going all the way back to verse 23, if you would, with me today. Um, I want us to think and reflect today on Matthew 22, verses 23 through 46. Um, and I'm going to break our normal habit because of the length of the text. I'm going to invite you to remain seated as we look uh, to this text today. That same day, Sadducees, who deny there is a resurrection, came to Jesus. They asked, teacher, Moses said, if a man doesn't have children dies, his brother must marry his wife and produce children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married, then died. Because he had no children, he left his widow to his brother. The same thing happened with the second brother and the third. Yikes. And, in fact, with all seven brothers. Finally, the woman died. Somebody should have switched cups with her at dinner. Uh, but anyway, at the resurrection, which of the seven brothers will be her husband? They were all married to her. Jesus responded, you are wrong because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power. At the resurrection, people won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, they will be like the angels from God. As for the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what God told you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, when the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as, your, as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, as the Pharisees were gathering, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? David's son, they replied. He said, then how is it that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, called him Lord when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right side until I turn your enemies into your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? Nobody was able to answer him. And from that day forward, nobody dared to ask him anything. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I would love for you to keep your Bible open. And um, I want us to think through where we've actually been the last few weeks. Uh, we've been in chapters 21 and 22. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The next few weeks, um, in just a little bit of a commercial, um, we have four more weeks until we get into the Advent season. Um, in the next four weeks, we transition into chapters 23 through 25 of Matthew, which if you've been with us as we've been studying Matthew together in this season, uh, Matthew is retelling the life of Jesus through the story of Israel, and included in that are five major blocks of teaching, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But the last four weeks, we end with the last kind of major block of teaching, the fifth, um, that we find in will be at the beginning of chapter 23 next week, and then the last three weeks until we get to Advent, we'll be in chapter 25. Uh, but I want to encourage you, uh, since we only have four weeks uh, to prepare for Advent, um, 
we are going to study together this little uh, devotional that I, I had the privilege of writing for the Foundry this year, Let Earth Receive Her King. Uh, we have a few copies here. You can get it on Amazon or the Foundry's website, but would love for you uh, to have one of those as we participate together. And when we get to the Advent season, we're going to try something a little bit unique. Um, as we uh, think about the four kind of key qualities of the Advent season, um, hope, peace, joy, and love, um, on Mondays, uh, those of you who are connecting with us online, um, but even those present, um, on Mondays at noon during the Advent season, we're going to do uh, what I've been affectionately calling the Monday morning quarterback, or at least uh, lunch with the pastor, something like that. Uh, but I would love for you to give questions and for even you to come and, and uh, join me at noon online and talk a little bit more about those texts and to think about uh, the devotionals for each uh, each day of the Advent season. So I'm really looking forward uh, to getting to Advent, but I'm looking forward uh, to finishing this part of Matthew uh, together. But if you have your Bible still open, the last several weeks we've been in chapters 21 and 22. So let me remind you of kind of where we've been. Uh, earlier, before chapter 21, Jesus is in the mountains teaching his disciples. We get that fourth major block of teaching, preparing them as they are headed down to Jerusalem um, coming down for a kind of revolution. And they, they have this triumphant procession into Jerusalem. And then chapter 21, Jesus cleanses the temple and curses the fig tree. Only to have those who are in charge of the temple, the religious leaders, come and say, hey, who made you the boss of us? What kind of, who gave you authority to do this kind of thing? And so, as you saw, we get three parables that are kind of a response to that. Uh, we had a parable about two sons, one who said, yeah, I'll go work in the field, but didn't, and the other who said no, and then did. And then we got a parable about a vineyard owner who has tenant farmers who don't want to give him what is owed him, so he gets new tenant farmers to take over. And then we had one more parable about a wedding feast, and the original guests refused to come, but the secondary guests, those on the margins, they did come, but then there's this kind of twist. One who came didn't dress right and didn't enter into the new life that was found at the wedding feast. But these last uh, couple of weeks, those three parables are then followed up by three questions, by three different groups of people. And so Jesus is being questioned. Last week we saw he's questioned by the Herodians about should we pay taxes or not? And so we thought about that last week. And then this week I wanted to include the text where then the next people who show up are the Sadducees, and then the next people who show up are the Pharisees. And we get these three kinds of questions about Jesus, or three kinds of questions that Jesus has to answer as they try to trap him. But those three questions are really central to what I want us to think about before we enter into this last section. And so go back with me, um, if you have your Bible open, go back with me to tw chapter 22, verse 15. So the Herodians, we saw this last week, the Herodians, those folks who are serious about faith. In fact, one of my, my favorite commentators says of these three questions or calls the three people who show up, the serious, the very serious, and the super serious, right? The Herodians, the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees. And the serious people show up, but here's the deal. They are connected to Herod and to this idea of we are gonna get along best if we have somebody like Herod the Great who expands the temple and who does a lot of questionable things, but we're okay with that because we get so many benefits. And 
we get to create peace with Rome. And so he may not be the embodiment of everything we want, but man, he does a lot of great things for us. Of course, Matthew narrates him early in the gospel as the one who is paranoid and is not afraid to kill Jewish babies in order to keep his power. And then he hands things over to Herod Antipas, who is the Herod that Jesus will encounter in the crucifixion narrative. And again, Herod is not quite the great, but he still does a lot of really good things for us. And he keeps us connected to the state and to the authority and keeps us in power, keeps our freedoms. And we don't like everything about him. Of course, Matthew narrates him as one who has kind of questionable practices of marriage and not only that, beheaded John the Baptist. That wasn't great. And so the Herodians are those who are serious, but they are connected. And so they ask this question about taxes. And as we saw last week, Jesus turns it away from a question about taxes into a question about identity. Whose image is on the coin, Jesus says. And they answer, well, of course, Caesar's. So he says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's, implying, but you all are marked by God's image. Therefore, you and everything belongs to God. As we wrestled with, it still didn't answer the question about whether we should pay taxes or not, but it reframed it in this way. Our identity is ultimately marked by God. And the problem the Herodians have is they actually have a couple of identities that mark them. And as Jesus will say in other places in the gospel, here's the problem. You can't be marked by two identities. You cannot serve two masters. You will grow to love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But I would say you can put any other kind of idolatrous identity in there. You cannot serve both God and some other thing that wants to mark your identity because you have been marked by God. You with me? So now here come the Sadducees. And again, if you have your Bible open, verse 23, the Sadducees come and Matthew tells us the problem for the Sadducees is they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. We've talked about this a bit before. I always, this is my joke. They do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That is why they are sad, you see, because for them, this is all there is. And it's not that they, be, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in some other kind of life after death, like our soul goes to be in some other realm or some other place and our body decays. No, for the Sadducees, this is it. We have been created as flesh and breathed into our breath, the breath of God. But the way that we live forward then is we live forward through our children, through our tribe, through our heritage. I think it's always hard for 21st century people to appreciate this text for a couple of reasons. One, our whole definition of family lineage and tribe and clan, all of that has changed a great deal from the first century days where these folks knew not only that they were Israelites, but what tribe they came from, from Israel. And so you had to have children because you wanted to build up your tribe. Your existence depended upon having more kids. And having more members of this tribe. Because kids couldn't decide to get out of it. Like, this is who you are. And so you are now a Benjamite. You are now the tribe of Dan or Levi. Like, this is who you are. And it's hard for us to understand because kids helped you make money. And so you had kids because it was cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Like, they were workers in your field. You wanted to have children. That is not the case anymore. 
They're so expensive. So you meet a young couple and you say, are you going to have children? And they say, I don't know if we can afford them. And I say, you're right, you can't. Um, and so the Sadducees come, not believing in the resurrection of the dead, believing this, though, that if we will follow God's law, God will bless Israel and bless our tribe. And we will flourish economically. We will flourish with freedom. We will flourish with better days for our children and grandchildren than we had for us. And this is what we are devoted to. Now, the problem with the resurrection of the dead is not just they couldn't get their minds wrapped around the idea of living after we die. But the problem actually was a political one. And that is people who believe in life after death can at times be quite scary. We have folks in our world today that we will use at times the word terrorist to define. And what creates terror for us about them is not just that they feel oppressed and they act out in ways that create violence and chaos, but what makes them really scary is they're not afraid to die. And that's really hard for us to understand because a people who don't want to die, you can control. I mean, seriously, many of us in this room think about security based on the threat we make to other people for their well-being, and we just hope that they are afraid to die so that they will do what we want them to do. But what do you do if somebody's not afraid to die? Yikes! Now, again, the early church because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They also weren't afraid to die, but as we'll think about, they were so shaped by the life and ethic of Jesus, they were convinced there was no reason for them to kill somebody, but they were willing to die, and that made them scary for Rome. But for the, for the Sadducees, they're worried about some of the folks that hang out with Jesus. They're those folks who are in the disciples who always get a word, the zealot, after them. For zealots are those folks who are so tired of being oppressed that they were willing to enact zealous acts in order to overthrow that oppression, and they did not care if they died. And the problem for the Sadducees is those people create problems for us. So think about some of those people groups in our world for whom they have people in their midst who are not afraid to die and enact acts of terror. What do they do? Hey, they're not us, right? Like, that's not part of us. And so the Sadducees are saying, listen, chill out. Be afraid to die. And so they come to Jesus, who, like the Pharisees, believe that there is a life after this life that is brought about because of God's gracious resurrection of the dead, and there will be judgment and a new creation that follows. And they come to Jesus and ask him a question based out of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. But the point is they're trying to make fun of this whole idea. And so they come and say, hey, Jesus, so this resurrection of the dead thing. So let's say there's a woman who's married and her first husband dies. Now, Deuteronomy 25 says she should become the wife of his younger brother. Now, again, this seems strange to us, but the idea here 
is that she's died without a child and she needs that name to continue through her, but she needs protection, security that a child, an heir would bring to her and multiple heirs. And so even though that second brother may be married already, he is to take her as his wife as well so that that unfulfilled lineage through the first brother can carry over through the second brother. In the ancient world, that makes sense. But here's the deal. What if he dies? And she marries the third brother. And oh, wow, she's kind of the black widow. He dies. And he, she marries the fourth brother, and he dies in the fifth and sixth. And he, she, she marries even the seventh brother, still does not have a child, and he dies, and then she dies. Oh, Jesus, well, then in the resurrection of the dead, whose husband or whose wife is she? Which one is her husband? Now, you're not, some of you are giggling, but you're supposed to giggle at this point. They're trying to say this is ridiculous. The whole idea is ridiculous, Jesus. To which he responds, you are kind of knuckleheads. For all you can think about is the rules of this old creation and the ways in which the law sets conditions to try to temper some of the consequences of this broken old creation. But the problem for you Sadducees, and the reason you are so sad, you see, is because you do not understand that the whole point of this is not to manage the old creation, but to live into a new creation in which the resurrection of the dead will come and death will be no more and weeping will be no more and needing children in order to make money and to have security will be no more. And we're learning love in patterns of unique covenant, as beautiful as that has been, how we'll be broken open so that all of us will be able to love one another with integrity and, and with friendship and goodness and mercy and all of the things that we wish were true now, all of that will come about. And so your question is ridiculous because it doesn't understand we're not here just to manage an old creation. We're here to live into a new one. And so the super serious come and say, well, we're in on that. But, hmm, which, Rabbi, of the 613 commandments in the Torah, which is the greatest, now, they're trying to trap him, and it's, it's possible that Jesus, who had a reputation for not obeying the Sabbath all the time and not living into all the cleansing rituals the way that the Pharisees liked, they were perhaps hoping that he would throw some shade on the moral code of the law and expose himself as somebody who actually doesn't like all the 613 laws, who in some ways is a lawbreaker, if you will. And they can say, to, oh, see, he's not, really, he's not really part of the super serious. And so they ask him, which is the most important? To which Jesus responds so beautifully, well, of course. The first law, the one, you, my brothers and sisters, in this Jewish family, you pray every day, even still, 
The people put a mezuzah on the doorpost with Deuteronomy 6.4 in it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Keep these words I'm commanding you today. Write them on your head and on your hand. Keep them on your doorpost and on your gate. Of course, that is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ah, and the second is like it. Taken from Leviticus 19. And you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, here's the line that really is awesome. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. It's a kind of cool image. It means these two commands that are paired with each other, all of the other 611 commands, they all find their meaning, their connection, their their life, they, they all flow from those two commands. And they are all then interpreted through those commands. And if you take away those two commands, the other 611 commands just fall on the ground. They're all connected to those two great commandments. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus said that, it was not as though they thought, wow, oh, we should have come up with that. We've never had that thought before. In fact, we know that rabbis prior to Jesus had that very same thought. And that in some ways they, they look at him and go, oh man, he's been reading our mail. He, he knows, he knows the secret. Now he knows the secret, but then this is the cool part of the end of these two chapters we've been in. Jesus flips the Flips the table around, if you will. It says, I have a question for you. Whose son is the Messiah? Well, of course, David's son. We've been waiting for somebody who will fulfill the promise of David. Solomon led us the wrong direction. We are waiting for a new son of David. Even Matthew has set up this whole gospel, as we saw in chapter 1, as narrating Jesus's the descendant of Abraham's covenant, but also as the son of David and the one who brings the people out of exile. He will be David's son. He will be of that lineage, of that heritage, but more than just the bloodline. He will be the fulfillment of those expectations and promises of a new kingdom coming and of a reign of peace and prosperity for God's people. And he says, but riddle me this then. Why, in Psalm 110, we don't get the reference in the text because these people knew the Scripture so well they didn't need the reference. We probably do. Why, then, in Psalm 110, verse 1, does David talk about his Lord being his Lord and fulfilling all things and bringing all things to a conclusion, but he's talking about his small L, Lord, small case L, Lord, his son, but who is also his capital L, Lord. So how can the Messiah be both David's son, but also David's Lord? To which they say, we are out of questions. For in that moment, Matthew He's doing this amazing flipping of the script, if you will. For 22 chapters, we have awaited this Messiah, and now we find that not only is Jesus that fulfillment of being David's son, but he's also the beginning of all things. 
the New Testament writers will talk about it this way. He, he is the fulfillment of all things, but he is also the beginning of all things. He is the omega, but he is also the alpha. Like all of this is coming together in this person, in this way of Jesus, that now we will follow all the way to the cross and the resurrection. So if I can try to land these two chapters and land this plane with us this morning. We started these two chapters by asking this question, why are religious people so hard to convert? Why, why sometimes are Christians so hard to save? And if I could go back just briefly to those three encounters, let's start with the Sirius, the Herodians. One of the reasons it's so hard to convert us is because it is so hard for us to ultimately find our identity in Christ. I, I think this is especially true uh, for us in the 21st century sort of post-existentialism. For we are a people who um, are convinced about the age of 19, we need to throw off everything that we have ever known and any kind of identifying mark. That's why even though I think my children are, are kind of proud of us, whenever somebody says, are you Scott's kid? They go, they, say, they don't want to be just known as Scott and Debbie's kid anymore, right? They want to throw off that identity. And that's why even as much as faith and practices have shaped them, there's a part of them that wants to say, but now I need to throw all that off and make my faith my own. Like that's who we are. We are a people who then try to go and find an identity. And the problem for most of us is there's all sorts of competing ways to try, that, try to find that identity. So we're constantly being pushed to believe our ultimate identity is being a citizen of this particular nation. Our identity is found in, a, in the clothes that we wear, in the car that we drive, in the house that we live in. Our identity is largely found, and I, I have to tell you, I struggle with this as much as anybody in this room. My identity is found in the amount of money that I have, in, this, in the certificates on my wall, in a sense of accomplishment. When somebody asks me, meets me in the community, the first thing they ask me is my name, but the second thing they ask me is, what do I do? And there's a part of me that is looking forward to retirement and it keeps getting closer. There's a part of me that dreads it because I don't know who I am once I can no longer answer, what do you do? Between you and me, Deb and I are doing okay, but there are days when you kind of go, now that all my children are, our children are out of the house, so much of our identity has been poured into being a parent. Who are we now? Right? Thank you. <laughs> But here's the deal, you cannot serve both God and that other identity. And most of us want that, that identity in God to be something that serves those other identities and makes them better. But the problem is at some level they also compete with that identity. And so why it's so hard for us to be converted is because it's hard for us to imagine what it means to be people who find our identity in Christ alone and then allow those other identities to flow out of that primary identity. And so we're serious, but it's really hard to get over that hurdle. 
But then there's the really serious who show up and kind of make fun of the whole idea of the resurrection. And the reason is because the other reason it's so hard for us to convert is because we are a people who are shaped by the, and I'll use air quotes here, the real world. And I, I say this to you often, but the biggest struggle I have in my walk and you have in your walk is that we walk out of these doors having said amen to so much of what was said, but then we go out and we think, that was great. But in the real world, you cannot win by loving. So you have to find other ways because that's not the way the world works. And so the Sadducees want to say to Jesus, this is all nice talk. But it's silly talk because that's not the way the world works. You die. And Jesus says, that's your problem. Is you are a people who think the gospel is about managing the old creation when it's about entering a new one. This, brothers and sisters, this is so hard. Every time I'm in a, a class and I try to push students to think about what the ethics of a new creation might look like, they all look at me like, you are the craziest person we've ever taken a class from. And they start inevitably coming up with the questions, but what about, but what about, but what about? Well, what about? And every one of those what abouts is the very serious people who are unable to convert to the idea that Christ is bringing a new creation. That's why it's so hard for us, because we have a thousand what abouts. And so the Pharisees, the super serious, come. I say, that's great, but like what's, like what's the most important thing? And we all think this is an easy answer. Love God and love neighbor. They're connected to each other. The Apostle John will say, you can't, like you can't disconnect them. You can't say you love God and hate your neighbor. You just can't do it. As I was wrestling with what is that, why is that such a hard conversion because it seems like such an easy one. I'm teaching uh, the history of the church in Nazarene and Emmanuel this semester. It's kind of fun. Um, but we're on the 50s right now, like the 50s and 60s in the church, um, which some of you were born then and lived through that. They were interesting years, not our best. Interesting. They were some of our most legalistic decades. And so it's been fun to kind of go with, you know, 21st century students and talk about all the things that made us Nazarene. And some of them are quite creepy. Um, and they, they just don't even know how to process some of it. And I thought about the, the problem for us to convert to loving God and loving others is that we can, it's so hard for us to convert to the idea that God loves us despite our performance. But the more I thought about that this week, the more I realized I'm not sure that's true for the majority of people in this room. A few of you who we formed during those couple of decades, you still struggle with that. Um, you, uh, you've taken laws that are kind of down the list of ways and made those central because out of fear, you're just convinced God could never really love you and so you've just got to keep 
trying on perfection at various levels in terms of legalism. The problem is you can never quite fit perfectly in that box, and so you keep falling in and out. And I think there are some of you who, who still struggle there. But I don't know that that, my generation on down, I'm not sure that that's the majority of us, that that's our struggle. I think our struggle is this. We're kind of convinced that God loves us. We're just not convinced God loves everybody else. That we're convinced that, um, all right, we're over the legalism thing. God does love us and accepts us as we are. Um, But obviously, because of the things that have happened to that person or the choices that person has made or the culture that person's from, clearly, I mean, yes, I know the right, I know the right answer to these answers. God loves them. But clearly, not with the same sense of love at which God loves us, right? Because if we were convinced of that, then every person we saw, including our enemy, we would look at and say, that person is a person created in the image of God who is embraced by the divine love of God. And because of that, the same love that I have received that has embraced me where I am should be extended from me to embrace them where they are. But that's such a hard conversion when you just still think your kids around a table competing for the love of the one that sits at the head of the table. I'm glad that you've been moved up, at least in your imagination, toward the front. Because there clearly must be something wrong with the others who haven't been as blessed. And so Jesus turns and asks us a question, well, who do you think the Messiah is? The one who conquers? <laughs> the one who comes like David? No, like the Messiah is not only the one who follows David, but the one who precedes David. The one who makes all things new, as we will see through cross and resurrection. But before we go there, we, the serious, the really serious, and the super serious, have to recognize how hard it is for us to convert to convert to an identity that is in Christ alone and allows all the other identities to flow from that. That's why we can be content if we're well-fed and hungry because our identity didn't come from whether we were well-fed or hungry. That's why we can rejoice whether we're clothed or naked because our identity didn't come from what clothes we wore in the first place. That's why, as Paul says, we can do all things if Christ is our center and our strength. But that is a really hard conversion. And it is so hard to be convinced and to be converted to the idea that a new creation has already begun because there's so much old creation around. And so we'll continue to live as though the gospel is about managing our old life and our old self and about this old creation and fail to be converted to the fact that we are now a new creation in Christ and all things are being made new. And how do we live into that? 
And even if we're super serious, it's still so hard to be converted to the fact that performance does not ingratiate us into the heart of God. But that we can learn to love the God who loves us. And then we can learn to love our neighbor in all of their forms. Because we know, like us, they too are an instrument and vessel of God's love and mercy. And we can view them and love them and embrace them with the same kind of love that has embraced us. It's really hard to convert out of the religious competition, isn't it? And that's why the last question is so important. And I'll close here. It's because none of those conversions are something that you and I can grit our teeth and do. I wish it was because I'd just yell at you some more and say, stop it, all right? Come on. Find your image and your identity in Christ, okay? Live into the new creation. Everybody in. New creation on three. One, two, three. New creation. Let's go do it, right? Go. Grit your teeth and love others, even those you don't think are worthy of anybody's love, including God. It is not something you and I can do in our own strength. It is only something we can surrender our heart to the one who was and is and is to come. And as we surrender our heart to him and follow him to the cross and experience his death and his resurrection and enter into that ourselves, we will find his spirit at work within us, reminding us that our identity is in him, reminding us that there is a new creation breaking out through us and reminding us that our neighbor is loved and needs to be loved by God. And may his spirit overwhelm us. <laughs> and may the one who is not just David's son, but David's Lord, be our Lord as well. God, we surrender ourselves to you today. Um, we confess. Religious people are hard to convert. We find our identity we, um, in wrong places. We, we're just trying to manage our old world realities. We still feel like we have to compete for your love. And so we surrender. Uh, we don't want to just be the seriously religious, the really serious religious, or even the super serious religious. We want to be your children. A people filled with your spirit. A people whose identity is in you. A people whose lives are caught up in a new creation people who are identified in the world first and foremost because of their love for you and their love for others. You cannot will us there. But I pray for all of us in this room that you would give us the ears to hear, give us the courage to confess, to look at you and to look at us and to see the vast difference. And you would give us the openness to receive your spirit. I pray uh, for a number of needs that I know in this room. 
where the old world brokenness really is present and still part of the reality of life. I pray for not just the grace to manage the difficulty, but for somehow in your recreative power that you would make us new in and through those circumstances. Um, Teach us how to connect to you. Teach us how to live as a foretaste of your kingdom. And teach us how to love as you have loved us. For on those two things hangs the whole thing. And if we get that wrong, none of the rest matters. And so be uh, our Lord today and make us your children. For we pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Would you stand with